Well, hello, church family. It's uh, great to see y'all. And I think coming up real soon, when I say it's great to see y'all, I'll actually be getting to see some of y'all. So we've been hard at work uh, up here at the church trying to figure out what it looks like for us to re-enter. And, uh, you know, what we see in the news are general statements, or what we see in a press conference are general statements. Then we go to the website, and there's all of the details that we have to follow. So our, our staff has been working on what it looks like to turn this sanctuary into a place at 50%. I think that's what a lot of us heard. We can hold 50%, but social distancing. That is equally as important by the guidelines. There has to be the six feet. Well, when we move around and mark off our room in the way they tell us to mark off the room, actually 50% for us is is an irrelevant number. With social distancing, what we can hold is about 250. We're, we're still working on that number, 250 to 300. And uh, honestly, I don't think that's what any of us thought we were going to be coming back to. And uh, so kind of in light of that and, and some, some of the details we are working through to make service happen, uh, a couple of things. One, we are going to stick with May 31. That is the day that we're going to come back to our first service. So today, May 17, we're like this. Next week, May 24, we'll be like this. May 31, our, our coming back is actually going to be an outdoor service. Because I think what a lot of us are excited for is, is just the opportunity to be, to be all together again. And in a singular service of 250 people, I don't know that we're going to have that feeling. So what we're going to do on May 31 is an outdoor service. Social distancing will still be in effect, but outdoors we can handle much more. And I, I, you know, folks, even as I say that, I know many are going to wait and see kind of what this looks like and how it unfolds. And it may be a handful of Sundays. It, it may be over a month before you rejoin. We will continue online uh, our live streaming. I mean, if, if you remember, we did live streaming long before there was ever a, a COVID-19. So we will continue doing that every single Sunday, uh, as on May 31, we start with the outdoor service. And then on June 7, uh, we will begin this new thing. And my guess is, regardless of percentages, as long as social distancing is in place, uh, I, I don't think we're going to be able to have a service much beyond 250 to 300 people. So this, once we start June 7, that's what most of our summer is going to look like. At least at the beginning, there will be nothing else going on. And, and by that, I mean there's no, there's no nursery. Uh, there's no small groups. There's nothing else going on. So it will be just the worship service in here with children. Again, I'm imagining a lot of parents with smaller children will opt to, to, to stay at home and, and continue online. So May 31, outdoor service, June 7, we'll start. And uh, we're working with the surveys you gave us. And you wow, we got over 700. Thank you so much. We're continuing to work through those. And, and we'll just kind of start working at how we register people, how you know that you have a seat with social distancing in place and uh, you have a service, you'll know that before you ever leave the house, uh, what you're, you're coming up to. So we're doing the best we can, as I said, to provide worship for the most 
while following the guidelines and and keeping all the the social distancing in place. I I believe we're going to be starting with three services, and we'll bring more information about that later. Whether your children are here in the building with you for worship or at home, kind of moving to another topic, boy, guiding children through a study of Revelation can be a a bit of a challenge. That's a a beefy book. Well, I kind of put a task, a challenge to our next-gen team to, hey, what help can we give parents who've got a a four-year-old and an eight-year-old sitting there on the couch with them or a a four-year-old and eight-year-old sitting in the room with them on on how to listen to this message and and engage with it on their level? And uh, our next-gen team does have a tool, and we'll hand it to you if you come up here and get it, if you're here at the service, or you can download it at home and uh, and be able to to use it there with them. So we wanna we wanna help your children kind of listen to this long winded preacher that they have. So hope you'll take advantage of that. You know, folks, when you whether we're talking about difficulties and challenges or we're making church and ministry happen in all of these different ways. It is amazing how many resources we have in America, in the American church. And part of what I'm saying would be a tr- true around the world. I mean, the internet online is what's making a lot of things happen. And that, that's true in a lot of places. But if I could even step out of the COVID-19 context for a moment and just say that the, the church, not just of 2020, the, the, the church of this generation, we have as much, if not more, than than any church has ever had. I mean, think about it. We have the sheer volume of churches on, on, on every street corner in America, the number of churches, the number of books, the internet, uh, seminaries. There is almost unlimited opportunity for you to learn about the Lord, grow in the Lord, look for answers to questions, study the Bible, unlimited opportunity to do that. And not just in a, you know, a learning sense, but even serving the Lord. Gosh, in America, there's just so many opportunities, whether you're giving to something, praying for something, or you're actually involved in it. There are so many ministries, so many ways that take into account your experiences, uh, your gifts and abilities, your passions, I wouldn't use the word unlimited, but it's almost unlimited ways to serve. It is amazing how much, how many resources we have in the American church. And yet with all of that, I I think most of us would agree that we're probably having as little impact on our culture right now as we ever have. How can so much end up meaning so very little? Well, I think Jesus has an answer for us. I hope you're not surprised to hear me say that. But if you would, turn with me in your Bible today to Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Go to the end of your Bible. Revelation's last book of the Bible. We're in chapters 2 and 3. If you're new to our church and this online experience, or maybe you've been with us before, but you're new to this series, we've been in Revelation now for uh, uh, several weeks. And I, I guess you would say right at the moment, we're actually in a series inside the series. Chapter 2 and 3 is a little grouping all by itself of some individual messages that Jesus gave to seven churches. Last week, we looked at church one and seven. And, and the reason we 
we pick those two is because they were both in a bit of trouble. Things weren't very good. Next week, we're going to look at chapter, not chapters, churches two and six. They're both doing really well. Today, we're looking at, at churches three, four, and five, the three churches in the middle, and they are, like I said last week, in, in the middle. They're, they're not so good. They're not so bad. But in these, I believe we're going to hear how so much can mean so little. And I, and I want you to, as I read, listen for words like ways of thinking, values, the word teaching. See, that's all content. That's values, how we make decisions, what we're doing in life. Listen for those words and ideas. Now, I, I do have a bit of a long reading today. We're, we're reading what Jesus said to three churches. And so I'm reading today out of the New Living Translation. I use that translation a lot when I'm doing a long reading or a difficult reading because it's just easier to hear. It's e- easier to listen to. So I'll be reading out of uh, that. And as you're thinking, oh my gosh, is he ever going to be done? Remember in Revelation 1, it promised a blessing for those who read, and I want that blessing, those who hear, and you want that blessing. So let's work our way through this. Revelation 2, and I'm going to begin in verse 12. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with a sharp two-edged sword. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refused to deny me even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You you tolerate uh, some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin, or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth." Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. To everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Write this letter, second church, write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know all the things you do. I have seen your love, your faith, your service, and your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. But I have this complaint against you. You are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn away from her immorality. Therefore, I will throw her on a bed of suffering, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from their evil deeds. I will strike her children dead— that's a scary sentence, okay? So children here is not little ones running around. Children here are the products of that teaching, the people who have become followers of that teaching. 
Then all the churches will know that I'm the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person. And I will give to each of you whatever you deserve. But I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths, as they call them, depths of Satan, actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. To all who are victorious, who obey me to the very end, to them I will give authority over all the nations. They will rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. They will have the same authority I receive from my Father, and I will also give them the morning star. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Third church, and this is the shortest message of the three, write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the message from the one who has the sevenfold spirit of God and the seven stars. I know all the things you do and what you have a rep- and you have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Wake up. Strengthen what little remains, for even what is left is almost dead. I find that your actions do not meet the requirements of my God. Go back to what you heard and believed at first. Hold to it firmly. Repent and turn to me again. If you don't wake up, I will come to you suddenly, as unexpected as a thief. Yet there are some in the church in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes with evil. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy." All who are victorious will be clothed in white. I will never erase their names from the book of life, but I will announce before my father and his angels that they are mine. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. So our question was, how can so much mean so little? And and, and folks, the way that is, so much can mean so little when we abandon truth. When we abandon what God has given us in his word, his values, his truth, his commands. And obviously, you and I live in a culture and we live in a a church world that has abandoned the truth. Listen, folks, this book is the only source of truth on navigating a relationship with God, knowing who he is, what he's like, and, and how we enter a relationship with him, how we get to heaven. So, so yes, this is the source of truth for all those kind of mystical, spiritual things, but this is the source of truth for, for sex and sexuality. This is the source of truth for money. This is the source of truth for relationships, the good ones, the bad ones, and and all the ones in between. This is the source of truth for every issue you're working on in life. Now, you're not surprised to hear me say that our, our culture has walked away from this, but you might be thinking, wait, pastor, you said the church has walked away from this? You know, I mean, honestly, I'd like to think not our church, but when you take all churches all the churches in America, all those buildings that have a sign out front that seem to communicate a, a, a Christian group meets here. If you take all churches, all denominations, yes, by far, the great majority don't believe that God created the world. Don't, don't believe that Jesus was born of a virgin. They don't believe in the authority of this book. And to that group, you would have to add another group who would say they believe, 
But honestly, their belief is almost irrelevant. I mean, oh, I, I, I believe that Jesus was born of a virgin, you know, when I'm in this building and, and we're celebrating Christmas. But, but that belief never translates to anywhere out in the world. It never translates to, to how I'm living and how I'm walking with God. So th- there are people who say, oh, I believe, but it doesn't show up anywhere. And I'm not just talking about obeying and, and disobeying. I'm saying that, that their beliefs here have no real guide on shaping their lives. And so, yes, by far, the church has walked away from God's word. You know, we think about our culture, but folks, 50, 60, 70, 100 years ago, I would say historically, you can track the church walking away from this book. And every step we take away from this book, wow, we're stepping into every problem that we're seeing in our lives, in our homes, into every problem that we see in our culture. Now Jesus addresses this by by talking to these three cities. And and uh man, you heard a lot of lang- you know names and cities you haven't heard before. And, and yet I read that and it sounds so incredibly relevant. Those three cities just well as well have been I don't know Dallas, Atlanta and Philadelphia or or Seattle, Chicago and 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 Boston. Uh th- these cities, okay, so they're not like your top tier world class cities. They're not like a, a London, New York, DC, Beijing. They're not that level, but they're just a smidge under. They're, they're that next level down. They're a Chicago, a Houston, a, a Shanghai, a Paris. They're, they're that next level down. And so all of these cities would have celebrated their openness to all the ideas, all the ways of looking at life. They, they would have talked about diversity and celebrating culture. You know, those are tricky ideas. There are some things there with with diversity and culture that I really do believe we should embrace. We should appreciate that that we grow up with different values. We grow up in different ways from food to clothing to to family and and, and ways of looking at the world. And I, I think there's a lot there that we can learn from one another, appreciate about one another. But there's this line where all of a sudden diversity in culture means accepting another God, respecting another God. Okay, now that's, that's not a diversity that's okay. That, that, that's not a celebration of cultures that, that is okay. We, we don't accept other gods. Well, these cities would have celebrated how open they were, not to the different cultures and ways we've lived. They would have been very open to the different gods that we have. And they were places of learning. Uh, Pergamum had a, a very large university and something that was not at all known in this time of the, this time in history, had a large library. So this is a, a place of education and understanding. It's, it's a place where all of the gods and ways of thinking and philosophies are celebrated. Uh, Pergamum had a large medical community. Now, part of that was a mystical medicine, but, but part of it is more of like what we would think, a, a more practical medicine. Uh, so you, you had, you had all of, of, of that going on in the world and, and, uh, you've got all that pressure to accept all things. And, and so, you know, if you, if you're living at that time, you, if you're a Christian really trying to live the Christian faith, you're, you're thought of as, uh, intolerant. You're, you're thought of as maybe even 
anti-intellectual, not just non-intellectual or unintellectual. You're thought of as anti-intellectual. Does that kind of sound familiar to, to where we are today? But yet what Jesus shows here is not just a pressure from out there in the culture to abandon the truth, but there was a pressure inside the church to abandon the truth. You hear about Balaam. Now, well, Balaam and Jezebel. Balaam and Jezebel are both Old Testament characters, Old Testament stories. Both of them had an impact on tripping Israel up. And so when he's referring to them by name, he's saying, you know, this person is almost of the the spirit of Balaam or the the spirit of of Jezebel, that kind of of mentality. Well, with Balaam, the, the issue that was going on there in that church was they they had a very open teaching that, hey, at the end of the day, what we have is God's love and his forgiveness and his grace. Well, we believe that, don't we? I mean, yes, we we celebrate that. The question is, what's the application of that? They were actually teaching, it doesn't matter how you live. It doesn't matter how you live. Hey, you, you live really good today. You live really bad today. Hey, we're going to heaven anyway. Hey, we're forgiven either way. Well, doesn't make any difference. Just, just so go ahead, go out there into the world and enjoy. I mean, they were actually kind of that open about it. It's almost the idea of did, did Jesus die to save us from sin or to save us to sin? They kind of went with, uh, hey, now I can enjoy sin and be saved. And and folks, that's running in the church today in America. There's very much an idea that I can go out there and live however and say I'm sorry and it'll all it all it all works out in the wash. I mean, hey, it's all by God's grace anyway, right? So they're dealing with that teaching. Jezebel was actually in Thyatira, they had uh, trade guilds or unions and to be a, and and to work, you had to be a part of the union. Well, here's the tricky part. Each union had a God. Each union had a God. And so if you were going to be in that union and you had to be in the union to work, if you were going to be in that union, you had to worship that God. And that wasn't just, oh, yeah, 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 I'll I'll worship that God. No, you had to be involved in services. You had to be involved. And you heard a couple of times this idea about eating meat, sacrifice to idol and sexual immorality. A lot of these false gods were were celebrated or or, uh, worshipped with the, the sacrifice of these animals. And then you would eat eat them. I mean, honestly, folks, some of the best steakhouses were at these idol worshiping places. And so as a part of the worship, it's just kind of putting the eating there as the exclamation point that you've been a part of the the worshiping of this idol. And there was a lot of sexual practices uh, that went along with worshiping these idols. Well, if I want to work, I've I've got to do that. Now you think, well, now there's nothing like that going on in our culture. Uh, you know, no, not not like that. I know I've had, oh gosh, over, over the years, I mean, let's be honest, pastors don't live in the real world, right? I mean, there's always that, you don't know what it's like out here. And I've had some pastors sometimes say it kind of mocking, or not pastors, church members say it mockingly. And some, I think, genuinely asking, saying, y- y- you know, pastor, I-, I believe this word and I want to live by this word, but honestly, I'd like to see you come try to figure that out in my industry. I, I mean, I've got a job that-, that actually will very openly say, you've got to lie. 
You've got to lie about this product. You've got to lie about what we can deliver and do. And, and lying is a simple one. That's an easy one. I mean, there's, there's some industries where you're very pressured to do things that are outside the truth of this word or, or you don't work. Or you don't have a job. And and so, again, that sounds a little bit different than Thyatira, and yet very, very much the same. And, and, and so you've got, you've got these, these – oh, Jezebel was actually telling the members of her church. She was a prophet there. She told everybody she was a prophet. She was telling them all, go ahead and get involved in the unions. Hey, we need to go along to get along. Hey, we want to be seen as a part. We want to be involved in the culture. See, it's interesting how you can have ideas that are very innocent. You can have some practical ideas that, that make a lot of sense, but then all of a sudden it slips right over into, well, wait a minute, this was never intended. And so she was actually encouraging them to go out into the world and be involved in, in idolatry and immorality. You know, folks, we can walk through a couple of passages and the different temptations there are. The fact is we don't need to look at any passages. We all know we're tempted to abandon the truth. We we know what God's word says. We know that, that he says, hey, this is what is works. This is what is right. It's for you that I'm saying this, but we're, we're tempted to abandon this and, and set it aside to to get along with others, to, to set it aside for pleasure. We'll put it down to not appear unsophisticated, non-anti-intellectual. We'll put it down because, you know, man, I just don't know if this works in the real world. I mean, I, I, I like it. I appreciate it. I'm just, I'm just not sure it works in the real world. And there's a lot of temptations to abandon the truth. And you know what? Jesus understands what you're feeling and what you're going through. You know, he says in, in chapter 2 there, verse 13, he says to that church, he says, hey, I, I know where you live. I know what you're dealing with. I, that kind of weird language there, he says, I know you live where Satan's throne is. Folks, we live where Satan's throne is. We are in the realm that Satan moves and works. We're in the realm of where Satan rules right now. And and in that realm, what is what did Jesus call Satan? Called him the father of lies in, in the gospel of John. He he gives life to lies. And he says, hey, I know the temptation that's there. I know you're mocked for holding to the truth. I I know there's a cost for holding to the truth. He refers to uh, Antipas there. He says, hey, I know about what happened to Antipas. Antipas was a a, a doctor. Uh, He was both a physician and a dentist. And uh, he was a soul winner. I mean, if you stood still long enough, you're going to hear the gospel from Antipas. I mean, he he loved the Lord. He loved sharing the good news of the gospel. Well, remember in Rome, not only in all these cities are all these different gods, but in, in the Roman Empire, you had to worship Caesar as God. Well, Antipas was such a soul winner. His activity drew the attention of the government, and and they saw him as somebody who was treasonous towards Caesar in leading all these people to the Lord. And so they, they found him guilty of, of treason and uh, they, they uh, decided to execute him. And they put him, they put Antipas in a copper drum and, and it was actually shaped like a bull. 
and uh, they had had it kind of peeled back, and you'd put a person inside it, and then close the copper drum tight, again shaped like a bull, and then it would be over a uh, a, a raging fire. I would imagine anything to do with fire is going to be a painful death. But, you know, like burning at the stake and being thrown into a fire and all that, you actually die kind of quickly because of smoke inhalation. I, I mean, you can only not breathe for so long and then you die. Well, the, the design of this drum is there's no smoke inhalation. So imagine that you're sitting in there or you got your, your hands down on, on a glowing red hot metal. You're cooking in there in an absolutely agonizing death that would have lasted much longer than just being thrown into a fire. That's how Antipas died. You know, I think it's safe to say if he could have set the truth aside just for a moment. Remember, there's a teaching here that says, go, go, listen, God forgives you in the end. It doesn't matter. Truth always matters. Forgiveness or no forgiveness, truth always matters. But one could make the case, hey, Antipas, if you'll just set the truth of of there being one God aside for a moment, if you'll just placate him, go along to get along, you you can stay alive. And you can't be a witness if you're dead. But you know, he found the truth of his God and the truth of eternal life. I don't know what all was going on in Antipas' mind at that moment, but I know we held true to who his God was. You know, the fact is, folks, any sin is going to pay off in the moment. I mean, anytime you set aside truth, you're, it, it'll get you pleasure. It, it'll get you revenge. It, it'll get you an advantage. Uh, it'll get you out of trouble. Hey, we sin for a reason because it works for a moment. See, lies always have an expiration date. I, I can't tell you if the moment is going to be 60 seconds or if the moment is going to be 60 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's some sins that will work for you for, for decades. But it's still lies. Lies can't carry life. And lies can't carry eternity. So whatever that lie was doing for me, whatever setting aside the truth was doing for me is going to come to an end. Life is found in the truth. Freedom is found. Isn't that what Jesus said? He said, man, if you abide in my word, abide doesn't mean just know it, doesn't mean just I mostly try to obey. Abide means I live there. I live in God's word. That's where my life is built. If you abide in my word, hey, that's how people are going to know you belong to me. That's how they know you're a follower of mine. And and if you abide in my word, you're going to know what? The truth. And what's that truth going to do? It's going to set you free. That freedom is real. That eternity is real. The fact that, yes, sin works for a moment, God's word works forever, that's real. You know, it it almost seems like the pressure we're under, the temptation we're under is, what reality am I going to focus on? See, I'm not going to sit here today and tell you that Jesus is the only reality. No, that that person tempting you to do wrong, demanding you to do wrong, backing you into a corner to do wrong, that's real. Everything you feel in that moment is real. What sin can get for you in a moment is very real. But what real are we focusing on? Because you know what else is real? Jesus is real. Jesus holding a sharp double-edged sword. 
That's real. As a matter of fact, I want to show you here five things that are real about Jesus. He holds that sharp sword. That was a a symbol of the Roman proconsul, the the judge who has the authority to judge and to execute judgment. I, I think in our culture, when we think of a judge, we think of that gavel. I mean, that gavel comes down and we're now in session. And that, and when that gavel comes down, the, the, uh, the sentence is set. Well, in Rome, it was this sharp double-edged sword. Jesus holds that sword. That's real. He is the judge. Number two, he will fight with that sword. That's simply the idea that he will bring the consequences of rejecting his truth. You have all the freedom in the world to walk away from God's truth. You have all the freedom in the world to live by the values and the temptations of the world, or really it's all from the father of lies, Satan, Satan's realm, Satan's rule. You you have all the freedom to do that. What you and I don't have the freedom to do is to choose the consequences. I can choose sins. I can't choose the consequences. And, and there will be consequences. Number three, Jesus, we saw this in, in Revelation 1, has these eyes of fire. That's real, folks. That's real. And, and we, we, we describe that, we define that as Jesus, like a, a fire burns through everything. It clears through everything. Jesus' eyesight does that. He sees everything. As a matter of fact, three, four, and five there in my list kind of all go together. Jesus sees everything. But that almost, for us, we kind of think on the outside. He sees my actions. Here's my words. But look at number four. He He sees my heart. He sees my mind. He not only sees what's going on on the outside, he sees everything going on on the inside. And then number five, he has the seven spirits of wisdom. Spirit there is the idea of knowledge. He has the knowledge of God, the wisdom of God, the understanding of God. And seven, when it's not being used literally, like the seven churches, is not symbolic. There are seven, one, two, three, there are seven churches. Here, seven is a, is a, is being used in a symbolic way, and seven has the idea of perfection, of complete, of total. So when it uses that phrase, the seven spirits of God, it's saying he has total and complete knowledge, understanding. So now take three, four, and five together. Jesus sees everything about you, everything on the outside going around you, everything on the inside going on around you, around me. And not only does he see it, but he has complete, total, perfect knowledge by which to interpret and understand and judge what is going on there. He's not going to miss it. See, folks, that's real. That's, that's why truth matters, because that moment is real. So there's a lot of real things going on. Which real am I going to focus on? Truth matters. Truth matters. It matters that we live that before our family and friends, before the world. How heartbreaking what he said to the church in Sardis there. You have a reputation for being alive. Hey, people know you're a Christian. They know you talk about being what? Born again, of, of having eternal life. But I'm walking around with the same dead values, the same dead lies. I'm walking around with the same dead life as the world all around me. What a disservice we do when we have life inside us, but we're showing death. 
And so Jesus says to the church in Sardis there what he would say to you and me, says in, in verse 3, what he would say to when we're being pressured to, to set the truth aside, when, whether that pressure is coming from out in the world or whether it's coming from the church, oh, may that never be the case. But wherever that pressure is coming from, Jesus says in three three, he says, remember this book. Remember what you've been given. Remember means study it, memorize it, read it, be under the teaching of it, pray with it. Remember what you've been given in this book. And number two, keep it. The whole purpose of number one is to get to number two. If I don't get to number two, and folks, this is a problem in America. As a matter of fact, I would say it's a problem with all those churches that do believe in the holy authoritative word of God is, is we make this book about nothing but studying. Oh, I go to this Bible study and I go to that Bible study and oh, I've got this whole series of books on my shelf and, and man, I am a, I'm an expert on the Bible. Am I living it? Hey, listen, number one's important. You got to know it. Jesus said, remember what you've been given. But the point of that is to get to number two, to live it to obey it. Hey, listen, this will help your life not only live in freedom and truth, it'll help you to stand before that Jesus who has the double-edged sword and the eyes of fire. That's what this book prepares me for. And then lastly, he says, repent. Now that, I'm going to tell you, that, that catches me off guard a little bit. I always think of repent as coming first. Repent, stop doing the wrong. Now here, here's the good that you need to do. But remember the teaching that is running through these churches. It doesn't matter how you live. God loves you. God forgives you. Hey, it's all about grace. So follow this. Hey guys, remember what you've been given. Read it, study it, memorize it, pray over it. Number two, keep it, obey it. And you know what? As you go out into that world to live this word, I I know you're gonna fall. I know you're going to fail at that, and I want you to know something. My love, my grace, my forgiveness is there to pick you up. Pick me up to do what? Continue in that sin? No, look what he says here. I'll pick you up to repent. You see, where did I trip? Where did I fall? On a road in which I was going the wrong direction. And Jesus says, man, when you realize you're on the wrong road, when I pick you up, let's repent. Let's get going back on the right road that he has for us. It makes no sense to continue in a lie. It makes no sense to continue on on a way that is false, that doesn't lead to life and life eternal. Hey, we've got a watching world, folks. Truth doesn't just matter for for us. Listen, every problem in our society today is, is directly related to a truth we've walked away from in here. Now, that statement's not meant to get you and me together casting stones at the world, complaining about the world. That's a challenge to you and me. Hey, we're the ones who say we believe. The world never said they believe this. You and I said we believe this. So let's go out there and live it. Our lives ought to be the greatest proof there is that this is the truth. We can have so much, so much money, so much love, so much fun, so much family, so much building, so much opportunity. But every step we take away from God's truth, we're just going to make all that we have meaningless. Let's go out there and live the truth. We need to go out there and live the truth as we try to process COVID-19, 
as we try to process an, an Ahmed Arbery. I mean, looking at that injustice, that wrong, hey, I, it's not up to my opinions and, and what I think. No, I go to God's word. God's word guides me in how to do it. Hey, I need to go to God's truth when I'm arguing with my mate. I, I need to go to God's truth when we're, when we're making decisions. Listen, there's a, a thousand different ways that the world will realize what is guiding you and me. Are they going to see us being guided by the same dead lies, the same dead values that lead them? Or are they going to see us being guided by the truth? Let's not let so much start to mean so little. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray we are true to your word, devoted to to reading, to understanding, to memorizing, to putting ourselves under the teaching of. God, I pray we're devoted every day to thinking how I live what I read in God's word today, how I live what I heard in the sermon this week. And Lord, when we realize we've gotten off the path, Oh, make us sensitive, make us desirous of repentance, turning turning from that lie as quick and as soon as possible and getting back onto the road, the truth that you have for us. Lord, I want, we want the world, we want it to be clear that we're your followers, we're your disciples. Help us live by your truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being with me today. One more time like this next week. And then we have a big outdoor service. God bless y'all. Have a great week.